Uh, so my name is Tim. Uh, I'm on staff here, uh, and it's my privilege just to go through uh, Proverbs 5 with you today. So just before we begin, let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray as this morning as we go through it together that we will not just um, gain head knowledge, but we will be changed by what is said through your spirit for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you who don't know, I am a massive technology nerd. I absolutely love gadgets. And especially if it's the newest thing on the market, that is what I really want. And actually, the one thing that I've really uh, got really into is Apple products. Um, preaching from an iPad. Um, it doesn't really matter what it is, whether it's an iPhone or an iPad or the new MacBook Pro. I kind of feel like I have to have them. Um, but sometimes this kind of passion of mine kind of grows into an obsession that gets out of hand. And in fact, two years ago, uh, it came time for me to replace my dead laptop. So, of course, it had to be the brand new, the absolutely recently just come on the market, market Apple MacBook Pro. And it couldn't just be the, the standard one that you could just go and pick up in the shops. It had to be the one that had the fastest processor, the best memory, had to have the best graphics card, you know, just in case I wanted to add eight extra screens to it. And if the, the CEO of Apple himself was going to buy um, a laptop, this would actually be the one you'd get. And my long-suffering friends for weeks on end heard about nothing else than this laptop that I really, really, really wanted to own. And finally, the day came, and I had it. And for about eight days, all was happiness and joy, until one fateful evening. So I was done with work for the day. I packed my bag, I put my computer in its case, and then I put everything else that needs to go in, so the charger and my headphones and my orange juice. <clears throat> and I got home, and I pulled out this pride and joy of mine. And I brought with it a liter of orange juice. It dripped from the corners of the case. And in that moment, all I owned was a massively overpriced paperweight. So my, my vision of this good life, this joy that I had, this satisfaction I had in this laptop, it was just sat there happily dripping orange juice onto my bedroom floor. But what if there was a good life that couldn't totally be destroyed by a liter of Tesco value orange juice. And actually, this is what Proverbs 5 is trying to show us, that there is this good life and that we probably actually already have it. And it wants to give us this satisfied life, but it also recognizes that this good life can only truly be pursued when we recognize that God created the world and then live in a way that reflects that fact. But actually, we decide to, that we can find life and satisfaction outside of God, the very one who created everything. And we are really um, expert and really, really experienced in replacing God's perfect wisdom with our own. And actually, we pay the consequence because of that. We trust our own ignorance in place of setting it aside and trusting in the one who created the world. We all want this good life, but we can be tempted to think that we get it without its creator rather than with him. 
And in Proverbs 5, we get this really powerful example of this in adultery. It's this taking things that are reserved for marriage and using them outside of marriage. And it goes against this created order. And married or not, we can be tempted to think that this good life is life without God rather than with him. But given we know that God created the world and wisdom is living within that knowledge, why then do we find it so easy to try and seek this satisfaction outside of what God uh, has given us? And it's actually because the good life apart from God looks so deceptively inviting and so sweet when actually it leads to bitterness and death. And we see this in verse 3. We're introduced to this adulterous woman. The lips of the adulterous woman drip with honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. This woman appears to be as sweet and as satisfying as can possibly be. And it draws us in, encourages us to think, it can't be that bad if it looks this good. And it does, it looks so inviting, but actually it's all an act. The description continues in verses 4 to 6. So look again with me what it says. But in the end, she is as bitter as gall, as sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. This warming, comforting sweetness of honey this smoothness of the speech that draws you in completely, totally and utterly vanishes. And it leaves this completely repulsive picture of bile, that burning, sickening taste in your mouth when there's nothing else left to throw up. And it feels like it'll never go away, sharper than a double-edged sword. So the first time I um, went and visited Central Asia... I was offered a local snack. And I was told it was a bit like candy. And they do look a bit like bonbons. Here's one, um, if anyone wants to try one. Um, And I actually really, really like bonbons. So I took this delicious-looking ball, and I popped the whole thing in my mouth. And you know that moment when you put something in your mouth and you taste it, and it's totally the opposite of what you expect? Well, it's that. This was awful. It was so sour and so salty. It tasted like milk that had taken a two-week vacation in the sun. See, because it looked like something that I was being offered was so sweet and so wonderful. But actually, I was left spitting it out in the middle of the road and trying not to be sick in front of a van full of people. And this world is full of those temptations to find the good life on our own without God to find this sweetness. And it's actually not very easy to spot the fakes, especially when life can be difficult and painful and confusing and when satisfaction feels really, really far away. It can be so difficult to figure out whether we're making really wise decisions. And life without following God's order does always look tempting. Of course it does, or else it wouldn't be tempting. It looks satisfying, but it always leads to this head over the toilet, sickness and bile, this bitterness and death. 
And so the father has warned the son, pay attention, have your ears open. Don't be tempted to let ignorance take the place of the knowledge that we possess. So if we know that this sweetness is an act, how then do we see the right path and make sure this adulterous woman doesn't pull us in? But it says it right there. Don't even go there. Run away. Don't go anywhere near it. Look at me again with verse 7. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep a path far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. And as I read through this passage in preparation, it made me think of all those countless TV shows where um, a movie, a, um, an affair is at the heart of the storyline. Think about how many of them started with the line, I know what I want to do. I want to sleep with someone that isn't my wife. Because that's a good idea. Well, obviously none of them. And I was recently listening to... Um, the This American Life podcast, and it had a fictional story of the very start of an affair. And in this story, a family pick up a feuding couple stranded halfway up a snowy mountain. And this story is told from the perspective of the husband, who notices notices the attractiveness of this woman that they just picked up. And he overthinks it when she brushes her hand against him. And then he lingers over a kiss on the cheek as she says, thank you for the lift. And through this story, we're given access to his thoughts as these events unfold. And we can see him mentally circling her, getting closer and closer with each pass. So that although at first he was really shocked by this thought of cheating on his wife, he allowed this desire for to be with her to get more and more real as time goes on. When they stopped to pick, him, pick them up, he didn't do it with the express... Um, idea and intention of having sex with a stranger but he allowed his thoughts to wander in that direction and he started to make excuses for why this was okay he thought to himself well she's more classically my type than my wife my wife's driving me to it in any way she's probably attracted to that other guy anyway and this is what the writer is um, warning us against so clearly here Don't even start along the path of that temptation. Don't be the person that says, I can handle this. I know when to stop. Because we are all open to temptation. We can be conned. And so the Father urges us to just run away. Get as far away from the con as possible. So there's absolutely no way that you can be drawn in. Because the fact of the matter is that every little decision, every flirtation, every small act and decision that we make actually does change us. The first time the guy in our story thought about cheating, he was actually shocked at himself for those thoughts. But by the end, his mind had changed so much that those initial feelings of wrongness and revulsion had been completely overwritten. But the wrongness of the act actually hadn't changed. It was his attitude towards it that had been completely and utterly warped. And in the end, he really did believe that sleeping with this stranger was satisfying. 
And in the complexity of life, there is this moment where we decide that the wise thing to do for ourselves is to step outside of what God made all of this for and what he says is right. And in that moment, it changes you decision by decision and act by act. It's moving you further and further and further away from true wisdom and is making you more and more foolish. And life is full of these things that when used in line with God's wisdom are really good gifts. But it's when we use them outside of this wisdom that they become the things that will finally trap us. The things that go from being a good source of the good life as to, as the passage says, putting us on the path towards death. And actually, for me, a really stark example of this, of how the decisions we make and the things we do changes, is pornography. In fact, just this Friday, there was a feature on mainstream radio, daytime radio, about the negative effects porn has on society, on our brains, and on the way we deal with sexual satisfaction. And a website that's dedicated to educating people in the damaging effects of porn says this. Porn promises a virtual world filled with sex. More sex. Better sex. But what it doesn't mention, however, is that the further a user goes into the fantasy world, the more likely their reality is to become just the opposite. It doesn't take much porn for things to start heading downhill. Even being exposed to porn just once can make people feel less in love with their significant other. Just once. And the article goes on to say that the reason for this is because even from that first viewing, our brains are being changed. We're moving away from the created order of sex and replacing it with something altogether more foolish and selfish and ultimately damaging. And it leads to a whole shopping list of physical and relational problems. There is always this claim, this promise that's oh so enticing, that life will be so much more satisfying if we operate outside of God's good life, out of the way that he makes these things to work. But it is never, ever true. And as we read on in this chapter, the writer actually sets out really clearly the destructive consequences in finding satisfaction outside of God's good life. And keep in mind as we read this, that imagery of the adulterous woman, when we read this in verses 11 to 14. Lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to the one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life, you will groan. When your flesh and body are spent, you will say, Oh, how I hated discipline. How my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Allowing yourself on this path puts you in danger of losing everything that is good. Stepping outside of the way of God's good life is moving us further and further away from wisdom and closer and closer to complete foolishness. 
It says, in the end, when it is too late, you will realize that you have lost everything that matters. Which means today, while you are still young, yes, 70 is the new 30, stay away from the adulterous woman. Stay away from her door. Or you may wake up to find that everything has been taken from you. Your honor, what makes you who you are, your dignity, your wealth, and all your effort. They've all been given over to something completely and utterly useless. Something that, as we have seen at the top of this passage, is bitterness and gall and can only lead to death. And this is why this example of adultery really helps us to see the painful and destructive consequences of unfaithfulness. How many men realize that they are on the path to losing precious relationships with their children the first time they click on that link that promises singles in their area? How many women realize they are at risk of destroying the security of the home they love just because of a flirtatious relationship with a co-worker? How many single people are putting every future romantic relationship in complete danger over finding satisfaction in 20 minutes on a porn site? And then how much more damaging when porn actually invades a marriage? How many people who seemed wise have been shown to be total fools because they fell for that honeyed call of adultery? How many of us are becoming foolish just because we don't realize that every decision in our life is either pushing us towards wisdom or towards foolishness? And look how difficult he says it is to get off the fool's path once you're on it. See what the adulterer says in verse 12 once he realizes what has happened. He says this, Oh, how I hated discipline. How my heart totally rejected correction. At the end of his life, he can see exactly what has gone on. He can see his utterly stupid errors. And just like the husband in the podcast story, refusing to see how he was consumed by desire, it's easy to make excuses, to minimize the consequences of our actions. I only spend a few minutes on that porn site. It's only really a flirtatious conversation. It's not that bad, is it? But once you're on it, being willing to be turned from that path is almost impossible. Because we don't actually want to be dragged from that path. We really don't. How does it feel when you're in the middle of whatever it is you're trying to find satisfaction in? Do you feel open to correction and discipline? When we are purposely denying the consequences of what we are doing and somebody points it out, however gently and lovingly they do it, is your first response, oh, thank you, I really desire correction and input from those I consider wise. These perceived little things are changing us. And with it, they're making it more and more difficult for us to be corrected, to be helped, to be moved from the path that we're on. You may not think that these little actions are changing you, these decisions are changing you, but they really, really are. And so as verse 7 says, keep a path far from her. Don't go near her house. Run away. 
Because every step on that path to her door is actually making you more foolish until you find yourself in a place where it is impossible to accept correction, eventually giving over everything of value in your life to your enemy and eventually leading to death. So if this true satisfaction cannot be found outside of the way that God intends, how then do we stop ourselves from going down that road? You love the one you're with. Look again at verses 16 to 19. Drink water from your own system, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. As the writer moves on in his thoughts, we go from this thievery and corruption of adultery to satisfaction and joy. We go from destructive power of our own ignorance to this life-giving, thirst-quenching joy of wisdom. Look at what he says in verse 16. Drink water from your own system. Why look for satisfaction in other places when you already have everything you need to be truly satisfied right where you are? You already have it. It's your own system. And wisdom is seeing that and living out that truth. And life isn't one easy path. It is difficult and it's often painful. And we do get distracted and we become selfish. And in those moments, it's really easy to believe that we do need to search out satisfaction outside of that. But it's actually in these moments where that call to remember where satisfaction truly comes from, then that it should sound the loudest. Because we all have this raging thirst And we are stood next to a tap of crystal clear ice cold water. And if you drink it, you're going to be satisfied. And you aren't then going to go in search of another source of water when the most perfect one is flowing freely straight into your glass less than a foot from you. So if you are married and are longing for satisfaction, you need to realize actually that you already have access to it. You have your own well. You have your own system. Maybe you don't feel that satisfaction, but wisdom shows us that little by little, doing the loving thing towards your spouse changes you into the kind of person who will one day be satisfied and be intoxicated by your husband or wife. And this is the message to us all. Married or not, just like the husband or wife who finds himself completely unsatisfied and on the brink of justifying some really foolish decisions because of it, we all need to little by little do that wise thing and be changed by it, becoming wise, so that we may be satisfied and intoxicated in Christ. Because ultimate satisfaction is found in Jesus And actually, Jesus explains this himself in the clearest way in John chapter 4, verse 14, where he says this. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. 
Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus offers this eternal satisfaction. Jesus is the one who quenches our thirst in a way that is only available through him. And it's knowing him that reveals every other attempt we make at satisfaction to be complete fraud. And the writer of Proverbs is continuing this argument himself when further on, when he says um, in verse 19, May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. The son in this passage seems to have forgotten why he is with his wife. She's become unsatisfying in his eyes and he's not feeling it. And that's the problem, isn't it? Satisfaction becomes about what we're feeling. So when we're feeling it, when we're not feeling it, we aren't satisfied. But the son isn't being told to feel it. He's being told to love the one he's with, to remember the wife of his youth, so that she may satisfy him always. He's urging that son to remember the reason he married her in the first place, rejoice in those truths and hold on to them. Because just like that five minutes doing what we know we shouldn't changes us, every time we drink water from our own cistern, we remember we already have what satisfies us. And we are being changed and becoming more wise. We're becoming more intoxicated with her love. Think about the times in movies where you see people stuck in the desert and they're crawling towards an oasis, panting, water, water. And that is the only thing on their mind right then, isn't it? It's the, they really know what they need and they won't be turned away from getting it. They're consumed with this desire for water. And actually, this is the picture of intoxication that we're getting right here, of being this completely obsessed with our own well that nothing else matters, of having our view so full of that thing that nothing else has even the slightest chance of a look in. Because knowing Jesus means knowing that you already have what satisfies you in your life. And when we enjoy that once again, the life-giving, thirst-quenching joy of God's provision, it gives us the ability to see our attempts to find satisfaction in stupid and ignorant ways for really what they are. So moment by moment, as you continue to be satisfied by what you already have, it will grow lovelier and more truly satisfying in your sight. And both outcomes here have been laid out in sharp contrast to each other. Live the good life in response to the knowledge that God has created the earth, making everyday decisions in the truth of this wisdom, being made more wise and more satisfied, or live outside of this knowledge. Seek satisfaction away from God on the path bound for destruction. And at this point, the writer of Proverbs plays his last card. After all his pleas for us to be wise, he gives us one more reason why wisdom is so vital. And it says it in the final warning in verses 20 to 23. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. 
The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. You see, whether you are living a life that says this is true or not, your decisions are made, your actions are taking place in full sight of God. Whichever path you are on, God sees it. So why let yourself be completely obsessed by something that can never satisfy you, especially in the sight of the one who made the world and has given us everything we need to be satisfied? And we're shown in no uncertain terms, if you do not listen to this warning, you will be completely ensnared by your deeds, bit by bit, decision by decision, becoming changed in a way that leaves you completely tied up by becoming a fool and eventually being led to death. That is the outcome of all those times you think to yourself, it isn't that bad. Where's the harm? You are being changed. And it leaves us with one question that we really need to answer for ourselves today. Am I becoming foolish or am I becoming wise? Am I living a life that is moving me towards wisdom or towards foolishness and everything that comes with that? The good life isn't going to offer you and isn't going to guarantee peace and trouble-free, pain-free life. But it does give us satisfaction, even in the midst of everything that is going on. It may not feel much like satisfaction right now. In fact, it may actually feel a lot like the opposite with what you're going through. But the passage urges us today to make that decision while we are still young, to keep on drinking water from our own systems, to keep on making the wise decisions day by day that will lead you into being intoxicated with God. And shortly, we're going to go into a time of communion. And as Ken leads us through that, why not use that time to examine uh, your life and the things that you're doing, the decisions you're making, and say sorry for those times when you're seeking satisfaction outside of God's eternal satisfaction. And pray that God will guide you through his spirit to moment by moment make the decisions which will lead to wisdom and eternal satisfaction. And if you're here today and you aren't a Christian, and maybe it's become obvious to you as we've gone through this that you are living the foolish life and you want that good life that is offered to you through Jesus, the good news is that actually that everlasting satisfaction is on offer for you today. So as we come to communion, as we sing together and and take the sacraments, why not admit to God that you've been searching for satisfaction outside of the good life that he offers and ask him for his eternal satisfaction and his wisdom so that you can live the life that he's offered you. We're going to sing together in a minute. um, But before we do, um, let's just take a moment of quiet and then I'll pray and then the band will uh, lead us.
Father God, we are so sorry when we do seek satisfaction outside of you, outside of your gracious provision. Lord, today may we turn back to you to realize that you offer us everything we need right here, right now. That even in the midst of everything that is going on, we will know that our decisions are either making us foolish and wise. And Lord, help us to make those decisions in full sight of you, to be wise, to make the decisions that will help us every day to know you more, to become more and more every day, more deeply satisfied with you. I pray this in your name. Amen.